Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Um, we are honored to have so many people here today. Uh, I do wonder what's happening back in Iowa with uh, the governor, two senators, and uh, so many distinguished individuals here. And we're glad to have all of you here in support of our nominee. Um, out of uh, deep respect for Senator Grassley and Senator Ernst, uh, the ranking member and I both will defer our opening comments uh, so that you do not have to sit through those. I know that you uh, would like to say uh, wonderful and glowing things about our nominee, and we know that you have other business that you need to tend to. So what we'll do is, is ask you to please go first. We will then begin the business in the normal way and move to testimony by Governor Branstad. But if you'd begin, uh, the most honorable uh, Senator Grassley, we'd appreciate it. We thank you for honoring us with your presence here today, and we thank you for your service in so many ways. And uh, with that, uh, we'd love to hear your comments. Yeah. Thank you, uh, Chairman Corker and Ranking Member Cardin and members of the Foreign Relations Committee. It's a privilege for me to be here to introduce the governor of Iowa, the next ambassador to China. And uh, I would say that this gentleman has been an ambassador all of his life for Iowa and will make a good ambassador to uh, China. He's been an ambassador for Iowa within the United States of America as he has told other Americans about Iowa, a great place to create jobs, a great place to do business. And he's been an ambassador for Iowa around the world many, many times uh, with many, many different countries, but especially with China uh, being an ambassador for Iowa's exports. Uh, it's an honor to appear here with Senator Ernst, and it's an honor, uh, even a greater privilege, to introduce a person that I call a good friend uh, way back when, Terry Branstad, at least to his first years in the Iowa legislature, uh, 1973. As many of you know, Governor Branstad is the longest-serving governor in U.S. history. He's a lifelong Iowan who has devoted his life to public service and even when he wasn't in public service as president of university, he was still an ambassador for Iowa. After more than 22 years as my home state chief executive, I'm proud to support Governor Branstad's nomination to serve our country as the next U.S. ambassador to China. His nomination should come as no surprise to the people of Iowa. We have long known and benefited from the relationship Governor Branstad has with the people of China. A sister-state relationship going way back to 1983 has grown into a successful trade partnership that has benefited Iowa farmers and businesses. Perhaps most notably, Governor Branstad enjoys a 30-year friendship with President Xi. Uh, their first meeting took place in 1985 when Xi was then a local provincial official who led an agricultural delegation to Iowa. President Xi visited Iowa again in 2012 when Governor Branstad was back at the helm uh, for a fifth term as governor of Iowa. Their relationships reflects a genuine goodwill and mutual respect. Governor Branstad has never stopped working to expand Iowa's trade, investment, and economic partnerships on the world stage, most importantly, including China. He will bring Midwestern humility and level-headed leadership to this very important job representing the 
people of the United States and the president there in Beijing. He is a workhorse who is unafraid to get in the trenches to get the job done. If he is confirmed, I'm confident that Governor Branstad will bring to bear his tireless commitment to solving problems and always move the ball forward. Although his heart will always be in Iowa, and I know he will return to Iowa, I know that Governor Branstad will throw himself into this job of being an ambassador wholeheartedly. Governor Branstad is uniquely qualified to help strengthen the trade, economic, and cultural, as well as the geopolitical relationships between our two countries. I'm pleased that he's now been called to serve as the ambassador. I'm very confident that he will represent the United States well and excel just as he had throughout his uh, lifelong career of public service, as well as his public, se public sector leadership. Without reservations, I support this nomination. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. And to Senator Ernst, who's brought her unique and distinctive background of the Senate and uh, certainly has made a major impact already. We welcome you and look forward to your comments. Thank you, Chairman Corker and Ranking Member Cardin and to the members of the committee. It is my privilege to be here today along with our longtime senior senator, Senator Grassley, to introduce my governor, my friend, and the longest serving governor in U.S. history, Terry Branstad. A native Iowan, Governor Branstad served in the Iowa legislature before serving our state as governor from 1983 to 1999, and again from 2011 until what I hope will be his swift confirmation as U.S. Ambassador to China. Having worked alongside the governor for many years, I know he will exemplify the same leadership thoughtfulness, and dedication in his role as ambassador to China on behalf of the United States as he did for the people of Iowa. Importantly, Governor Branstad also knows China and its leaders well. He first met President Xi Jinping while he was visiting Iowa on an agricultural research trip in 1985. They have kept in touch over the years, and Governor Branstad has since visited China a number of times on behalf of the state of Iowa. Iowa's extensive trade relationship with China has given Governor Branstad a front seat view of the complexities of our country's broader trade and economic relationship with China and will provide him with the foundation to effectively advocate for U.S. interests. While our bilateral economic relationship with China is certainly important, I don't have to tell you that our list of bilateral issues with China is long and expands beyond trade and investment to include issues like North Korea, the South China Sea, human rights, and more. Accordingly, the position of U.S. Ambassador to China is one of the most important ambassadorial positions in the world, and I am confident that President Trump has made an excellent choice in nominating Iowa Governor Terry Branstad for this role. I look forward to him being confirmed by the Senate and bringing the Iowa way to Beijing. Um, I also want to extend my thanks to the support that has been given to Governor Branstad by his wonderful family, and I know he'll introduce Chris and the rest of his family soon. Uh, they are truly an asset to Iowa. I know that they are going to be a greater asset for the United States of America. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you both. I know our ranking member would love to thank you for your comments. And Yes, let me, uh, Governor Branstad, let me just point out that 
Uh, your two senators are very much respected in this institution, and having both of them here to speak on your behalf is impressive, and we thank both of our colleagues for, for sharing their comments about you. Thank you both very much. Um, so we'll return to our opening comments. Governor Branstad, it's a pleasure to welcome you here today as our nominee to be the next ambassador to China. I'm glad to see members of your family here today as well. I wish you all the best as you embark on this exciting new venture. Beijing is not Des Moines, but I know that uh, I know that your relationship with President Xi spans decades, and I'm confident that you fully understand the breadth and depth of the challenges awaiting you in China. When we met in my office, I appreciated your honesty and candor about managing the complexities in relations with China, and I look forward to expanding on that conversation here today. As I've said previously, the U.S.-China relationship is one of the most consequential relationships for U.S. national interest. The nature of relations between Washington and Beijing will have a profound impact on the security, prosperity, and stability in the region for coming years. Uh, you will have a unique opportunity to help shape that relationship and move it in a direction that is beneficial for both countries. But it certainly will be a difficult task, as U.S. relations with China have been trending in the wrong direction for several years. China's militarization of the South China Sea, cyber theft of intellectual property, which, again, uh, I was at a meeting last night on this very topic. It's just outright theft. Outright theft. And it's something that has to end. The discriminatory trade and investment practices, uh, in addition, are just a few of the areas of rising tension in the relationship between us and uh, between the United States and them. We can no longer afford to simply manage our differences with China as Beijing continues to challenge U.S. power and disregard international norms. However, we should always seek cooperation in areas where we can work together, including reducing the threat posed by North Korea. I also believe that we must have a clear, must be clear-eyed about China's long-term goals, which are not necessarily aligned with U.S. national interests. Short-term gains should not come at the expense of long-term U.S. national interests, values, rule of law, international norms, and our alliance commitments, which we have many in the region. We must be direct and willing to use our leverage when China challenges U.S. political, security, and economic interests. Governor Branstad, I look forward to hearing from you about your vision for relations with China and plans to serve it as, effective, as an effective advocate for U.S. national interests. Again, thank you for being here. I look forward to our ranking members' comments and then your testimony. Uh, we appreciate you and your family all being here. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And Governor Branstad, once again, welcome to our committee. And thank you very much for your career of public service and your willingness to continue to serve our country in a very important position as ambassador to China. I also want to share a thanks to your family because this is a family sacrifice and that we appreciate the willingness of your family uh, to allow your service uh, to, to our country. Uh, you have a very distinguished background, very impressive background. A confirmation hearing gives us an opportunity not only to look at your qualifications, but also to view, view the scope and tra trajectory of the U.S. relationship with the country that you've been nominated uh, to represent the United States, China. 
Indeed, as we contemplate how to address the situation in North Korea, we recognize that China plays a critical role in that regard. So as we look at so many of the circumstances around the world, China comes up in our view. Thirty years ago, we were debating whether or not China would be a major power. That debate is now settled. But the question of what sort of power China will be remains. Will China help to support peace and stability in Asia or seek to overturn the regular order? Will China become a trade partner committed to the enforcement of international laws or will we continue to see the flouting of international norms as Chairman Corker has mentioned? Will China open space for its citizens to express their own views and ideas or will it continue to brutally repress its own people? These are questions that you will confront if confirmed, and while we may not yet know all the answers, I am concerned by some of what we are seeing. For example, we have seen an increasing provocative China in the maritime domains, coercing and intimidating neighbors in the East China Sea and South China Sea, and attempting to use the threat of military force to address territorial and regional disputes. And as you and I have discussed when we sat together recently in my office, I'm deeply concerned by the deterioration of human rights uh, in China and the environment for civil societies and independent voices in, in that country. I, when I joined the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on East Asia, President Xi became the president of China. At that time, many of us hoped that China was on the verge of a more progressive or reformist era and that along with growing interaction with the outside world and a significant economic development, human rights would indeed improve. Yet the opposite has proven true. President Xi's administration has adopted a slew of laws that violate the most basic human rights of the Chinese people and that presents challenges to U.S. interests and values as well. The community of civil activists in China who thrived in the 1990s and 2000s, partly as a result of the U.S. engagement, both diplomatically and economically, have come under assault as never before. When I joined the subcommittee, it was unthinkable that people in the United States or EU would be detained by Chinese authorities, inside and outside mainland China. Yet that is the current reality. And all the while, we still do not know if the Dalai Lama will be allowed to return to Tibet. We do not know the whereabouts of Penjin Lama. We do not know whether authorities will release the Nobel laureate Lo uh, Xiaobo in 2020. And we do not know if the people of Hong Kong will be able to continue to exercise genuine autonomy. But we do know that President Xi is set to remain in power for at least the next five years. So I'm very interested in hearing your thoughts on how, if confirmed, you will stand with civil society and with the Chinese people, including when it comes to labor rights, where I must say your record as a governor in Iowa has raised some concerns, and assured the human rights and universal values are at the heart of U.S. policy with China. I'm also interested in your thoughts as to what we may see by way of cooperation with China or North Korea going forward. I understand that what the President has asked of China, but I remain concerned that we've seen this movie before, and we really haven't seen any change in China's position as it relates to North Korea. Many of us are concerned that they'll only go so far but they're concerned about the stability of the current regime will prevent them from taking the necessary steps that change the equation for North Korea. We welcome your thoughts on that matter. 
So let me lastly mention one additional issue. You will take, if confirmed, the oath of office to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. Before President Trump took the oath of office, many of us urged him to take steps to avoid a constitutional conflict with the emolument clause. And he's the only president that has not divested or set up blind trusts for his financial institutions. That is not your doing. Your doing is to represent our country, if confirmed, in China, and must take steps to make sure that our Constitution is not violated. That is, that the Trump enterprises are not given favors by the China regime uh, in order uh, to, that would violate the emolument clause. So we're interested in learning how you intend to make sure that you defend the Constitution and protect against that particular uh, challenge. So I look forward to your thoughts on how you can elevate the current state of play between the United States and China, your thoughts on how to move the relationship forward, especially on human rights, and you, what you hope to achieve if confirmed as our ambassadors to the People's Republic of China. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Cardin. Uh, with that, uh, your entire written testimony without objection will be entered into the record, so don't feel that you have to go through all of it. If you could summarize some comments in about five minutes, uh, that would be great. We welcome you here. We thank you for your willingness to serve in this capacity and look forward to your comments. Thank you. I'd like to begin by thanking Iowa's two outstanding senators, Senator Grassley and Senator Ernst. Uh, they're very conscientious hard-working and outstanding public servants and uh, I'm proud to have them as friends and I appreciate their support and Chairman Corker Ranking Member Cardin members of the committee it is indeed an honor to appear before you today as President Trump's nominee to be the United States ambassador to the People's Republic of China never in my wildest dreams would I have thought that a farm boy from a small town of Leland, Iowa, would one day have the opportunity to become, with your consent, the ambassador to the world's most, one of the world's most influential countries and one of America's leading trading partners. I'm thankful to President Trump for his confidence and his trust in me to take this important diplomatic role. I would not be where I am today if it were not for the people sitting right behind me. My wife of almost 45 years, Chris, is my constant support and most understanding person that I know. Thank you, honey. Yeah. Also, I want to introduce my sons, Eric and Marcus, who have joined me today. I know that my daughter, Allison, who's a third grade teacher, and my children's spouses, Adrienne, Jerry, and Nicole, and our seven grandchildren, are watching from afar. They've already wished me good luck this morning. <laughs> Pursuing this opportunity was a family decision, and I'm very thank thankful for their guidance, encouragement, and support, especially over the last several months. If confirmed as ambassador, I will work every day to represent American values to the leadership of China and the Chinese people at large. Values that include upholding human rights for all and a free and open market, a rules-based order in the ocean surrounding China, and the importance of free press. I look forward to joining 
the impressive and committed team of public servants and their families from the U.S. Uh, State Department and many other U.S. agencies at our embassy in Beijing and the consulates across China, leading this team of dedicated professionals who are working as we speak to promote America's interest in China would be a great honor and responsibility that I would not take lightly. My relationship with the President of China, Xi Jinping, goes way back, as you've heard, to 1985. As a first-term governor, I had the opportunity to welcome an agriculture delegation from Hebei Province of China, Iowa's sister state, to the state of Iowa. Leading that delegation was a young man whose business card read, Xi Jinping, Feed Association of Shishazhuang. During the trip, our sister state director, Luca Baroni, took our new Chinese visitors on tours of farms and factories and to receptions and dinners with our sister state volunteers. They attended a birthday party, a Mississippi River cruise, and we showed them true Iowa life and hospitality. I even hosted the delegation in the governor's formal office. A connection was made and a friendship was founded. To this day, President Xi still speaks fondly of Iowa and the hospitality he enjoyed there so many years ago. If confirmed, I hope to use my unique position as an old friend of President Xi and a trusted confidant of President Trump to positively influence the U.S.-China relationship. As the governor of Iowa, I saw firsthand the importance of a positive and healthy trade relationship between our two countries. Nearly one out of every two rows of Iowa soybeans last year were sent to China, as well as $33.5 million worth of pork in 2016. The importance of trade extends beyond agriculture as well. Aviation products, manufactured goods, chemical chemicals, electronics, and many other products and services are exported to China daily and help support and sustain the American economy. As ambassador, I will continue to work that I have started as governor to open up the Chinese markets to American business of all sorts. This will be good for the American people as it will create more jobs and good for the Chinese people as they will have more access to the best made products that the world has to offer. In keeping with President Trump's mission, I am committed to making sure that the trade relationship between the United States and China puts the American worker first. Our relationship with China is multifaceted, not solely focused on trade. And I'm aware of the critical national security issues that our two countries must work together on as well. As President Trump made clear when he met with President Xi at Mar-a-Lago a few weeks ago, China could play a critical role in convincing North Korea to dismantle its nuclear and missile programs, a strategic policy that would boost the security of America, China, and the entire world. As governor, I had the opportunity to visit Taiwan as well. As ambassador, I will be committed to communicating the United States' continued support for our One China policy expressed in the three joint communiques and the Taiwan Relations Act.
we remain committed to our goal to see that this cross-strait issue is peacefully resolved in a manner that's acceptable to both sides of the strait. I saw firsthand many of the cybersecurity concerns that the United States has in regard to China during my time as governor. When I received a monthly security briefing, the protection of, the protection of intellectual property and technology security is of utmost importance to our country. And I will continue to make that clear in frank discussions with the Chinese government. On the South China Sea, China cannot be allowed to use this artificial islands to coerce its neighbors or limit freedom of navigation or overflight. The United States will uphold freedom of navigation and overflight by continuing to fly, sail, and operate wherever international law allows. As governor, I had the opportunity to travel to all of Iowa's 99 counties every year, a feat that is affectionately named for your esteemed college as the full grassley. As ambassador, I hope to continue this tradition by visiting every province in China. With a country as large and expansive as China, I know there is much life and activity outside of Beijing. I look forward to connecting with the Chinese people and continuing a vibrant exchange of culture and ideas that we began back in 1983 when I signed the Sister State Proclamation with Governor Zhang Shuguang. If confirmed, I will work tirelessly to represent America and her citizens to the best of my ability. I will champion American interests in China with as much fervor and dedication as I've championed Iowa's interests during my more than 22 years as governor. I'm humbled to be considered for this position. Mr. Chairman, Mr. Ranking Member, members of the committee, thank you for this opportunity to appear before you today. I welcome your comments, questions, and continued dialogue. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'll defer my questions uh, to the ranking member and reserve my time. Senator Cardin. Well, Governor, let me compliment you on your opening statement. In a very few minutes, you have covered most of the important issues between the U.S.-China relations. And I must tell you, uh, you the way that you've expressed it, I believe, uh, expresses what I would hope to hear from uh, our ambassador to be. Uh, to, to China. And I think you'll find there's strong bipartisan support for the way that you have expressed U.S. interest in these, inter in these areas. Uh, I particularly appreciate that in the opening part of your, com uh, your statement, you mentioned that you would represent American values uh, and that uh, would include upholding human rights for all. You and I have talked about that. I uh, have made it a practice to ask all nominees for ambassadors uh, representing the United States questions related to their commitment to human rights, but for China, it's particularly important. We have found that China is moving in the wrong direction, and you've pointed that out in, in some of your comments and in our private discussions. How you conduct your affairs, where you travel, who you allow access to in our embassies, you're reaching out to NGOs that have been 
declared by China to be uh, unwelcomed uh, is a real statement about not only our values but universal values. So can you drill down a little bit more for me how you intend to advance our values on human rights uh, if confirmed as ambassador? Senator Cardin, thank you very much. Human rights is very important. It's a bedrock of America's value system. As governor, I have always tried to go, not only everywhere in the state of Iowa, but throughout the world. I went to the old Soviet Union six weeks after Chernobyl. I was one of the early governors to go to China. Uh, and yet, I've always tried to recognize my responsibility as an American to represent our values and to espouse those. And uh, it would be my intention as ambassador to bring in and to bring up these difficult issues that, that the uh, Chinese leadership uh, may not particularly want to talk about, but are important. And consequently, uh, I, I'm not afraid to do that. I have done that throughout my career. I recognize as ambassador, it's an even bigger responsibility because I'll be representing the whole United States of America. And when Americans or anyone else in the world is not treated fairly, I think I as ambassador need to bring that issue up to the people in power in Beijing. So if I understand you'd be welcoming to our embassy those who may disagree with the government of China on their policies on human rights or their yes. political dissent? You would I would not only be willing to welcome uh, people of all backgrounds to the embassy, but also to travel to other parts um, of, of the uh, country to meet with them as well. Uh, Senator so I think it's important. I learned this as governor, and that is you don't want to just uh, be surrounded by your staff. You want to get out and see the real people in your state and in the, in the country. And as ambassador, I want to get out and see the people in China. I want to learn from those people that don't feel they're being treated fairly as well. Senator Rubio and I sent a letter to Secretary Tillerson uh, requesting that he uh, place a high priority on human rights and our bilateral relationship with China, mentioning uh, the problems of religious minorities, and yeah. including the, the, the people of Tibet. Uh, would you be willing to take advice from members of Congress uh, on individual cases and champion them and work with us as we try to raise the eligibility uh, of these issues? Yes, Senator. In fact, as I've gone around and met individually with members of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, a number of those have been brought to my attention, and it would be my intent to work with all the members of this committee and others uh, in the Senate on these issues. I, I believe that's part of the responsibility of the ambassador, is to be there on the ground in China and to be an advocate for our interests. And my, my last request would be that uh, I've asked staff to keep in touch with our embassies. And I appreciate the fact that you mentioned in your opening statement the, the, the professionalism of the, the people that yes. serve in the mission that are critically important. They take direction from the ambassador. Uh, I would ask that you respond to our staff, our, both staffs, as to steps being taken to advance the human rights agenda so that we can work together uh, in regards to elevating uh, the importance of that part of our relationship. I certainly intend to do that, uh, and I do uh, 
understand that we have a very dedicated professional staff, both the State Department and other agencies, and it's a very large staff that's available at the embassy and the consulates. I intend to work with them. I want to learn from them as much as I can, but I also want to work directly with you and other members of the United States Senate and your staff. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Young. Governor, thanks so much uh, for your willingness to serve. I thank your family for their years of service as well to the state of Iowa. Uh, we're fortunate to have someone who has a personal relationship with the President of China who's put themselves forward as well. So um, I enjoyed our visit together. One of the things we talked about uh, was North Korea. And uh, you've also touched on this uh, very important topic in your prepared statement, indicating that China could play a critical role in convincing North Korea to dismantle its nuclear and missile programs. What more specifically do you think that China could or should do to push North Korea to take the necessary steps with respect to its missile and, and nuclear programs? China, as you know, is a neighbor of North Korea. They are a major trading partner with North Korea. Uh, they have recently put some restrictions on importing coal from North Korea. I think there's other things they can do uh, diplomatically and economically uh, to send a clear signal that uh, they, as well as the United States and other countries in the world, uh, uh, do not tolerate this expansion of nuclear technology and missiles by the North Korean leadership. Uh, it's a threat to uh, all of humankind. And I think it's critically important that we look at all opportunities to work together. I know that this has been discussed by President uh, Trump and President Xi. Uh, I would want to do all I can to serve as a key go-between as we explore how we can work together with other nations also in Asia to, uh, to address this critical situation. So I'm, I'm curious whether there are a menu of particular economic or diplomatic things we can do to heighten the, the pressure as, as this pressure campaign yeah. continues. And perhaps, perhaps from a process standpoint, you can speak to um, how you might try and, and collaborate regionally yeah. uh, with, uh, the, with, with the regional uh, bureau there. Um, you know, our, our Secretary of State said publicly uh, within the last couple of days that he doesn't think that our State Department's doing a good job connecting uh, its state-level objectives and initiatives to the broader regional concerns. Uh, as ambassador to China, could you, could you speak to that as you talk uh, to some specifics on North Korea, please? Well, I think we need to always look at how we can do better uh, and how we can improve and recognizing that the world is facing a very critical threat uh, from North Korea at this time. And I want to make sure that we're not leaving any stone unturned in trying to look at all the different avenues that are available, uh, both working with China and working with other nations, especially in that part of the world. Well, I'll look forward to, to working with you. And, and do you commit to, uh, if, if you see a lack of coordination, uh, and right. of course you'd be co communicating that, I presume, to the Secretary of State. Um, hopefully, you know, you have uh, individuals on this committee 
uh, which would like to work with you to improve that level of coordination. I recently met with Secretary Tillerson. Yeah. We had a very constructive meeting, and I intend to work very closely with him and with the other State Department personality of which it, personnel, of which there are, are some very uh, experienced and capable people at the embassy uh, in Beijing right now. I'll pivot uh, very quickly to uh, the protection of intellectual property. Uh, in your prepared statement, you indicated it's of the utmost importance to our country. I think all of us here uh, agree with that. Uh, the U.S. leads the world in biomedical research and discovery. However, weak IP protections and a growing array of localization barriers abroad are threatening innovative medicine exports and the many jobs they support here at home, including in my home state of Indiana. China in particular is a serious offender. Uh, Beijing has not lived up to the intellectual property commitments that it made to the U.S. and others through the World Trade Organization. If confirmed, in order to protect America's innovation and jobs, what will you do to push the Chinese to respect IP protections, including in the area of biomedical research? The point you raise is very critical, and we've had some experience with that with regard to plant breeding, and we actually even had uh, uh, Chinese that were uh, stealing um, uh, knowledge from American companies, and uh, I think a few years ago we saw criminal prosecution of that, and it occurred in my state. But I recognize, especially because of our world leadership in medical technology, that is a critical area. But I've heard from many other um, manufacturers and other businesses about the stealing of intellectual property. And this is something in, in you know, that's why we have patents and that's why we go so far to protect intellectual property rights. And in the meetings I've had with business people, not only in my state, but as we've, we've done trade missions, uh, this is a critical issue uh, that, and I think as the Chinese have advanced, uh, hopefully they're going to see that there is a danger to them as well in having their intellectual property stolen by other countries. So I think it's critically important that they abide by and support uh, intellectual property rights and that it is not only right for America and protecting our businesses, but it's right for them as, as well. And I hope that I can convince them that they need to change their policies and they need to be uh, more vigilant in, and uh, serious about protecting uh, intellectual property rights. That's good. Senator Coons. Thank you, Chairman Corker. I'll simply follow up on uh, what Senator Young and uh, Chairman Corker both said previously. Uh, when we had a chance to meet my office governor, I was clear with you that intellectual property is also a significant concern uh, of mine. I'm from a state that has a, a long and proud history of invention and innovation. I was just at the Hagley Museum yesterday, uh, which has uh, the records of the DuPont Company and all of its early inventions. They have a remarkable collection of patent models, which they're actually exploring sharing uh, with the Chinese people across a dozen sites in China. I, I'd be interested in hearing... Um, just some more insight into how you will use your important and long and trusting friendship with President Xi uh, and what I expect will be your growing knowledge of China as you visit every province. 
uh, to really make intellectual property and stopping the theft of America's inventions a key priority in your role as governor if confirmed? Well, Senator Coons, the, the uh, incident that I was mentioning a few minutes ago actually involved DuPont Pioneer. Yeah. And uh, as you know, we share uh, DuPont Pioneer. Uh, they've been a wonderful American company, mm -hmm. and um, we think it's critically important uh, that the rights, and, and, and I'm aware of the fact that they're doing some important business in China. Mm -hmm. uh, we also have the World Food Prize in Iowa. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the recipients of the World Food Prize is a Chinese gentleman that was involved in rice. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's opportunity for uh, DuPont Pioneer, and, and, and they're also uh, going through a potential merger right now. Mm -hmm. uh, there's opportunities for them to work together for the benefit of not only these great American companies, but also uh, Chinese business as well. And I want to do what I can from the background and experience I've had working, especially in the agricultural area. And as you've heard, Xi Jinping's first visit to America was an ag delegation, and they were there during spring planting time. They visited the farm of the president of the Iowa corn growers, and they, and they visited a turkey farm, and they visited others, as, and the Sukup Manufacturing Company that makes bins, grain bins. But I hope to be able to, because of that background and experience and because of the very good way that we treated Xi Jinping and his delegation, hopefully to convince him that we need his collaboration and cooperation in dealing with some of these critical issues where China has not adequately addressed the protection of these important intellectual property rights. Thank you, Governor. I have two other quick questions for you, if I might. And uh, let me offer that I look forward to working with you and with the senators uh, from Iowa as well as my senior senator uh, from Delaware to strengthen some of these ties between right. China and the United States with the goal of relentlessly pressing the importance of a shared commitment uh, to protecting uh, patents and trade secrets and other IP. Uh, you grow a great deal of corn and soybeans. Uh, we do, too. Um, and we feed them to our chickens, and we'd like our chickens to go to China. Uh, we have... Uh, well, we thank have you. And Sonny Perdue told me that he may be from Georgia, but he also raised corn and soybeans. So I was encouraged to hear that as well. And as long as those corn and soybeans go to chickens and the chickens go to China, we're well, all going to be happy. <laughs> I will tell you that we filed a complaint against China in the WTO uh, and I think successfully asserting yeah. uh, that China is unfairly restricting U.S. chicken imports. Uh, more than 10 percent of all chicken grown in the United States is exported. Uh, we have not been sustainably successfully able to access one of the most promising markets in the world, which is China. Uh, if they're going to join the world community through things like the WTO, they need to play by the rules. And I uh, hope that you will prioritize uh, opening uh, the Chinese market for uh, poultry, whether it's from uh, Georgia, Iowa, or Delaware? Well, first of all, I agree with you wholeheartedly that we need to have a fair and open market for these products, just as they have an opportunity to market a lot of products in our country. Uh, poultry is really important. Uh, uh, we do sell them a lot of pork, but beef is presently restricted as well. Uh, I have also visited with Tom Vilsack, who, as you know, has gone now from being Secretary of Agriculture, former governor of Iowa, to working with the Dairy Export Council. 
and I think there's opportunity to get more opportunity for dairy there as well. This is an area, especially when it comes to agriculture products, that I've had a lot of experience in, and I hope that because uh, Xi Jinping has some experience in that background too, that it's an area maybe we can make some connection. I've also had some very frank discussions with uh, Minister Han, who's their ag minister, on these issues. I agree. I hope you'll make great progress on that. In closing, I'll just reference the last topic we discussed, which is Africa. China has yeah. become the dominant investor and player in Africa, eclipsing even the United States. Uh, and I urge you uh, to compliment them on their significant leadership in uh, pledging to shut down uh, their illegal ivory markets, uh, but also to find ways that we can explore cooperation on the continent of Africa uh, before uh, we completely lose uh, our foothold uh, as a main player and that you will continue to advocate for our values uh, in China uh, and in how we both uh, engage in Africa. I appreciate you bringing that issue up, and I think they have made a commitment now to stop this illegal trade in ivory, and I think that is critically important. Uh, before I came back as governor, I was president of a medical school, and I actually went to Africa, and we have a number of doctors and medical people that volunteer, and even our medical students from Des Moines University uh, provide uh, health care in Africa. I think it's critically important that we work together. Uh, I will be glad to compliment them on what they're doing in Africa. I think we need to look at opportunities to collaborate wherever we can. I'm appreciative of the Americans that donate their services and time to help improve drinking water and to help improve conditions for people in Africa. Well, thank you very much for your testimony, Governor. Look forward to supporting your nomination. Thank you. Governor, I expected you be able to be able to talk fluently about pork and <laughs> chicken and soybeans. I didn't know our city feller from the Delaware could do that, so I've learned a lot <laughs> today. Uh, Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Governor, for your time today. And, and while Chris counts his chickens, I'd like to end China's beef on U.S. beef. Yes. Uh, so, so thank you. I'm uh, with you. Thank you uh, for that. I think we're close, but we obviously need a little bit more help uh, to make sure that this market is open uh, freely and fairly uh, to U.S. agriculture, particularly beef producers. Um, you and I had great conversations about North Korea. I know uh, with Mr. Young and Mr. Cardin and others, you've talked about North Korea and uh, the role that China plays, the, the particularly important role that China plays as it relates to uh, North Korea's nuclear behavior. Uh, this Congress worked to change the doctrine of strategic patience, which had allowed the North Korean regime to proliferate, uh, to launch a number of missiles, to test a, a number of nuclear weapons. Uh, and uh, I think it's important that we look at the North Korea Sanctions Act that this Congress passed unanimously uh, as a way forward to make sure that we're deterring aggression and indeed inducing behavior uh, with North Korea and others around the region to put more pressure on the Kim Jong-un regime uh, to, to denuclearize peacefully uh, the North Korean government and North Korean regime. Uh, in those conversations, though, I think one thing that we have to consider is whether or not China is going to, uh, in full faith, uh, carry out its commitment under United Nations uh, Resolutions 2270 and 2321. Uh, while right now we see them taking actions that they haven't taken in recent years, uh, will that continue or will they slip back into what China does, and that is a, a policy of its own uh, doctrine of patience as it relates to uh, North Korea? What do you plan to do if China fails to uphold either the United Nations resolutions or indeed fails to use its influence 
uh, over North Korea's regime. Well, Senator Gardner, as you've pointed out, they have not abided by these United Nations resolutions. And I think what's happening right now with North Korea is an example of why that needs to change. Uh, this is a very serious situation, and I, I, I don't think China wants to have a flood of refugees from North Korea going into their country. Uh, I also think that they recognize, as other nations in Asia recognize, that uh, this a nuclear uh, obsession that the leadership of North Korea has and with uh, guided missiles and everything is a very serious threat to humankind and that we need to all look at ways we can work together. I hope that my longtime relationship with the leader of China uh, and I can con convey to him that we sincerely want to work with them and we want to work with other nations as well because this is one of the most important and serious threats of facing us all at this time. Do you believe there is a role for U.S. secondary sanctions on Chinese entities should China fail to live up to its commitments? I think there, there may well be. Obviously, that decision will be made by the administration and by uh, the, the leadership here in Washington, D.C., but uh, I, I think uh, just as uh, recently, I think... Uh, uh, the, the Secretary of Commerce, uh, they, uh, they recently uh, uh, levied a big fine on some Chinese entities that uh, uh, illegally provided uh, uh, national security information to uh, rogue nations. So, and and uh, that was, uh, I think, the largest... Uh, penalty of that sort that's happened to date. So I'm hopeful that's an indication that we're taking these threats real seriously and that we intend to hold uh, companies, whether they're um, government-owned uh, or controlled entities or otherwise uh, accountable. Yeah, thank you. And I think uh, even when it comes to cybersecurity issues and cyber attacks against the United States, many of the North Korean efforts against U.S.-based companies have gone through China or traveled through China, and so we have a number of cyber sanctions at our disposal as well, and I would encourage uh, the usage of those sanctions as necessary. Um, when it comes to cybersecurity, I appreciate your, your statement when you talked about the protection of intellectual property rights. There's, uh, right. There's a company in Colorado who did business with China, uh, sold a particular type of pump uh, to a, a company in China. Months later, the company from China wrote back to uh, this company in Colorado with an email asking some questions about the engineering schematics of the pump, but the new name of the company in China was exactly the same name as the company in Colorado. So in those conversations you're having with the, the Chinese government, some experts uh, believe that uh, over 10% of China's GDP can be attributed to the theft of intellectual property. Uh, how will you assert both cybersecurity issues as well as intellectual property rights and make sure that they are living up to their obligations. The example you cite of the Colorado company, I've heard that from Iowa companies as well, uh, of, of where they have worked in uh, cooperation with the Chinese company and then they see uh, their product being exactly copied. And this is a clear violation 
of intellectual property rights. And this is the kind of thing that I think we have to uh, very vigorously uh, uh, object to and do everything we can to stop. And we also need to convince the Chinese that with their economy, uh, frankly, uh, this theft of, of, of property will also come back to bite them as well. And that the sooner that they get serious about this, the better it's going to be, not just for uh, improving relationship with the United States and other countries, but also for them in protecting their own uh, uh, intellectual property rights in the future. Thank you, Governor. And I know my time has expired, uh, but uh, we'll continue our conversations on important issues like the South China Sea as well and Taiwan uh, and the important relationship with our ally, Taiwan. Uh, but I just want to end with this, that I hope that uh, this, this position, uh, upon your confirmation, you will use it to really work with Congress in a way that I think has been neglected over the past several years. Uh, that you will have a relationship with members of this committee and the Congress in a way that really builds upon this critically important relationship of China and the United States. And I think there's an opportunity here to do things uh, as ambassador that uh, truly do need to be done between one of the most consequential relationships uh, that the, the world has to offer. Thank you. Well, thank you. I intend to do that when I was, uh, well, as governor, I've been uh, co-chair of the governor's at, at, council. Uh, we, we know you're going to work with us. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, Governor. Okay. Thank you. Thank Senator, you. Senator Markey. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, welcome, Governor. You and I had a good conversation about fentanyl yes. uh, in my office. Um, if people were dying from fentanyl across the country at the same rate that they are in the United States, uh, uh, in the state of Massachusetts, uh, 75,000 people would have died from a fentanyl overdose in 2016. 75,000 people. Um, the precursor chemicals for fentanyl come from China. And they come from China into Mexico for the most part, and then they're transported up into the United States. So this is still relatively early in this epidemic uh, because people are dying at a very small fraction right now in the country as they are in Massachusetts and New Hampshire and other states, but it's coming. It's a preview of coming attractions. So could you talk a little bit about your commitment to raise the profile of this issue at the very highest level to make sure that the Chinese government understands that uh, we expect them to crack down hard on these fentanyl exporters? Well, Senator Markey, for the last two years, the National Governors Association has been adequate actively uh, discussing these issues. And uh, I agree with you, this is a dangerous poison. Basically, it's a less costly uh, narcotic than heroin, and it's becoming a huge problem in many states, not just in your state, but I'm, I think in Ohio as well as in other states in New England. It's going our direction as well, so we're concerned about it. Uh, if we can stop it at its source in China, we need to do that. And that's an issue that I intend to uh, pursue very aggressively because it's human lives that are being lost needlessly. And this is a poison that is, uh, needs to be uh, prevented from uh, going on to the world marketplace. Thank you. And again, this has to be elevated to the yes. same level as nuclear, nonproliferation, copyright, trade. It has to be 
the same exact level. Because people are dying at the same level. Right. Across there the hasn't country. been enough public attention Honestly, about this yet. This is this is just absolutely a crisis, you know, in our country. Um, we would be losing two Korean War levels of 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 Americans every single year to fentanyl. Two Korean War levels. Okay, so we can't allow that to happen. We have to put the protections in place, and the Chinese can be key in the same way that the Chinese are the key in any negotiations with North Korea. Uh, the president says, if China is not going to solve North Korea, we will. Well, we have very few options beyond preemptive military strikes without China. And so it is going to require China to play a big role. But over the last year, from first quarter of 2016 to first quarter of 2017, there has been a 37% increase in trade between North Korea and China, uh, notwithstanding UN resolutions and their commitments to have tougher sanctions. So can you talk about what you believe has to be the conversation that goes on between the United States and China for them to drastically increase the implementations of the enforcement of the sanctions, uh, which would bring uh, the Koreans, to the North Koreans, to the table. The Chinese have wanted us to have direct talks with the North Koreans for years. I agree with that. But it has to be partnered with crippling economic sanctions uh, by China on the North Koreans, and that is not happening. So can you talk about your view of that? I would hope that recent events has convinced China that they need to take this much more seriously. Uh, it happens to be that the leader of North Korea's half-brother was living in China when he was brutally murdered at, uh, the, uh, at the airport in Kuala Lumpur, uh, Malaysia. So if, if nothing else is a signal, that sure ought to be. The other thing is obviously uh, the threatening uh, actions, and I think recently the China Daily kind of sent a message to the North Koreans that this uh, nuclear uh, mission and uh, missiles that they're shooting off is counterproductive, and I hope that they will use that as a reason to tighten down on sanctions and get serious about working with us and other countries in dealing with this. This is a very important and critical time to deal with that in light of the actions of just the last few months. Yeah, because the other, we don't need a second Korean War. No. That's for sure. We don't. We, we, we Chinese, need, we need their happen. help, and I don't think they want a war over this either. Uh, they don't want a bunch of refugees from North Korea pouring into China. Uh, I've been to Harbin, which is north of North Korea, uh, it's an agricultural region of China, uh, and we need their cooperation. We need their assistance in peacefully dealing with this and and uh, changing this uh, dangerous direction of uh, North Korea at this time. Thank you, Governor. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Portman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And, uh, Governor, good to see you. Thanks for coming by to visit. And, Thank um, you. 24 years as governor, uh, 
Well, that's, that's, probably that's won't serve out the full standard. 24 years if you confirm me, but <laughs> I, I'm, Only I'm in my 23, 23 yeah. sessions. Yeah. Um, you've done a great job, and, and uh, you've shown today that you've got a grasp of what's going on over in China, and I appreciate that. Um, it's a tough job. You know, I, I knew Sandy Rand pretty well and was over there with him a number of times, and who was kind of a China expert, and um, I, I know you're going into this with your eyes wide open, but despite your relationship with uh, uh, President Xi going back to his days as, you know, head of a, a livestock association, um, they're, they're tough negotiators. And, you know, when I was U.S. Trade Representative, I had the opportunity to negotiate them quite a bit. And, uh, you know, we do have a, a better relationship now at the presidential level, I believe, than we've had in a long time. But we've got so many issues. I was over there uh, on a congressional delegation a couple weeks ago and had the opportunity <laughs> to meet with Premier Lee as well as uh, Chairman of the National People's Congress, Zhang, and talked about the issues that have been raised today, including North Korea, including the South China Sea, including the level playing field on trade, uh, IP, uh, intellectual property issues, as, as well as their overcapacity and their, their dumping in the United States. Um, we also talked about the issue that uh, my colleague from Massachusetts, uh, Markey, uh, Ed Markey just raised, which is fentanyl. And uh, one point I made to them was there is information that fentanyl is also leaking into their society. In other words, it's not just a question of stopping the laboratories in China where some evil scientist is creating poison that's coming into our communities. And by the way, the new push is directly fentanyl, 90% pure, being mailed to America, uh, you know, to Des Moines and to Cincinnati and to Columbus. And, and it comes by the mail and people are ordering it over the web. And uh, it is killing more people this year by far than it killed last year. So this is getting worse, not better. And Massachusetts has been hit hard, so is Ohio. But I really believe, from talking to experts around the country, this is the new wave. It's a synthetic uh, form of heroin, as you know. Uh, but it is 30 to 50 times more powerful than heroin. And not only are there more overdoses, but there are more deaths as a percent of every overdose because of it's so deadly. So they have a responsibility to work with us on this. We need to do more here, obviously, on the demand side. And we need to do more in terms of stopping it through the mail, which many members of this committee are on our legislation called the STOP Act. But uh, I would like today to hear from you uh, on this just to assure us that you're going to press on this issue. You know, they have 170,000 chemical plants in China, and uh, these are legitimate plants, I understand yeah. that, but they've got a lot of pharmaceutical chemical plants that are illegitimate, and with their control over their economy, I, I believe they can do much more to be able to stop this poison from coming into our, our country. And again, as you said with regard to intellectual property and as it relates to so many other issues, including Korea, they should have an interest in this. Um, so could you just confirm to us today that you will press on this issue and specifically talk to them about not just shutting down uh, some of these plants, which they have to do, but actually being sure they schedule more of these precursors so that they become illegal and that they do more to shut down the fentanyl production in China? Senator, I want to do everything I can to work with you and Senator Markey and others that are very concerned about this issue. I think it's really a life-and-death issue. I also think, in addition to shutting down the plants, they need to punish the people that are doing this. Uh, and, and I want to press that because it is such an important thing to saving human lives and preventing uh, this poison from... And as you say, it's, uh, uh, it's a danger in their country as well. We know it's a very se severe, growing danger here. 
but it's, it's something that uh, uh, has no place, and I want to do everything I can. I'll, I'll be looking for advice and counsel on what can be the most effective way, but I'm not bashful about bringing up tough issues in negotiations. Uh, you have had great experience in negotiating trade deals, and uh, you know I, on a much lower level, as have worked on that for decades, but this is an issue that really comes to protecting uh, human life, and it's, it's something that uh, uh, we've got to take very seriously, and I intend to raise this as a top issue along with the others that we've talked about here today. Well, thanks for that commitment. Uh, by the way, most of it's coming from China, according to the experts, so this yeah. is obviously something that they can be uh, much more responsible about. With regard to trade, there's so many issues, and let me just touch on one quickly. Back in 2000, Chinese production of steel was roughly the same as the United States, uh, and that is 100 million tons a year. Since 2000, they have gone to 1.2 billion tons per year steel production. So a net importer of steel became the biggest exporter of steel in the world. And in that process, uh, through this overcapacity that they've developed, uh, they've been selling steel below its cost in the United States of America. It's one of the reasons we have lost over 12,000 steel jobs here in this country during that time period, 12,000. And uh, I raised it with them, of course, when I was over there. More importantly, I think um, we need to have an ambassador who understands this issue and will be sure that with regard to their dumping or their subsidization, which is also going on, um, that they understand that we're not going to put up with it anymore, that there's a uh, an absolute necessity to have trade that is level. And as you said, I have negotiated with them in the past on, on trade. You know, this is one of their responsibilities as a member of the WTO and a responsible, uh, mature trading partner now, obviously. Uh, so any thoughts quickly on steel and the dumping of steel and uh, your commitment to press on that issue? Back in 1993, I helped attract a... a a steel uh, company to Iowa called Ipsco Steel from Canada. Ipsco. And they've been sold to SSAB. Mm -hmm. And I've been working with SA SSAB. I've been active among the governors on pressing for action on dealing with the dumping issue and the unfair competition in steel. So this is a critical issue, one that I'm familiar with because we've got a company, uh, SSAB, uh, in Montpelier, Iowa, between Davenport and uh, Muscatine, uh, that uh, has been negatively affected by this. Mm -hmm. So I want to do everything I can to make sure that uh, uh, we stop the uh, unfair and illegal activities that we've seen from China in the steel industry. Thank you, Governor. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. I. I I do want to highlight, I, I doubt there's no country in the world that we have so many issues with, and the uh, most important relationship for us are two yeah. countries to manage properly, but I'm uh, uplifted by the fact that you have so many personal experiences with many of these issues as a governor, and uh, you know how important they are to, to real people. All of us have had family, friends who've died, I'm sure, from yep. fentanyl. We've we know of the job losses that have taken place. We know of the outright theft. And, I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just like going and robbing a bank uh, directly, what they do to intele with intellectual property. And I do hope uh, with the relationship you have, you will be a constant 
uh, force for dealing with uh, the multiple violations of international norms that take place uh, with China. Well, Senator, I appreciate your um, counsel on this important issue. And, you know, this is one thing about being the chief executive, being the governor. Uh, the buck stops with you. And whatever happens, and I was governor during the farm crisis of the 80s. I've gone on trade missions all over the world. I've dealt with a lot of issues. And I think that background and experience uh, is going to be helpful to me in this role. I know I have a lot to learn about foreign policy and a lot of these issues, and I've been trying to get up to speed as best I can. But uh, I'm not bashful about bringing these issues up, and this, the fact that the, the leader of China calls us an old friend doesn't mean that I'm going to be at all reluctant or bashful about bringing up issues where we think they have not been fair and where Americans or, or anybody has been treated unfairly, be it human rights or intellectual property rights. Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Governor, con thank you for your service and uh, congratulations on your nomination. Thank you. Uh, China is probably one of the most complex posts that anybody could ever be uh, offered. Uh, so uh, I am still in the process of trying to understand the president's worldview uh, and understand how he determines alliances and partnerships. So since obviously you've had some discussion with him about this role, do you believe China is an adversary or an ally of the United States? That's a tough question. I think both are potential, but I think we need to do everything we can to try to make them an ally and we need to look at ways that we can work together. I know from the food perspective, the Chinese are very concerned about food security, and they've had some real issues on food security. And I've been in China and talked to them about how we, and, and we are a country that are blessed with safe, uh, secure food supply, uh, and 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 it's, and it's, and it's also and it's not only great quality, but it's among the cheapest in the world. So I'm hopeful so that we, were, we can use. So our aspiration is for them to be an ally. Right. But if you were to describe them now, our relationship with them now, what would you say that is? It's mixed. Uh, I I think that uh, there's a lot of areas of, uh, but but I think we've got to always strive to try to break. The barriers and, uh, you know, I was one of the first governors to go there, you know, after uh, they began to open up and move to a more market-driven economy. And I think that, you know, what I want to do is try to stress on them because of the change that's taken place over the last 30-some years, they benefited greatly. But they also have an obligation as a growing power now to also uh, play by the rules and do the things that are expected of countries that are world leaders. I appreciate that. Now, for months before taking office, the president excoriated China for manipulating its currency to the detriment of American workers, insisting that he would put American workers in labor force first. So can you, but things seem to have changed. Can you clarify for me, do you believe that China manipulated its currency in the past? I think they have. I think that has changed somewhat in, in, in recent uh, 
months or in the last year or so. Uh, but I think that's a obviously great concern because if they are able to manipulate their currency and make their goods cheaper to export and ours more expensive to import, uh, that is one of the challenges that we're facing. So, uh, yes, that's an issue that we need to continue to monitor. And uh, uh, that is one of many things that I think uh, we need to continue to be vigilant on uh, on um, in terms of uh, reviewing the situation and seeing if indeed uh, that has changed or, or not. Well, I appreciate your directness on that because uh, I too believe they have been a currency manipulator. They're not right now. Yeah. And the question is how do we avoid them, uh, get them to understand that that is not a good proposition for China or, right. or certainly for the United States and, and workers. So uh, I, I hope that you'll spend some time and attention to that as you unfold the, your, your issues there. Uh, I am concerned, as is the president, about North Korea, and some of my colleagues have talked about that. But despite some strong rhetoric from China, uh, because of its deep economic ties and its border, uh, China, from my perspective, continues to enable North Korea's leaders to pursue uh, destabilizing nuclear weapons. So the question is, we seem to have a lot of hope in President Xi as it relates to helping us with North Korea. And I do hope that that unfolds. But the question is, if it doesn't, should we not consider giving China greater consequences so that they understand their calculus is wrong? For example, the sanctions that Senator Gardner and I uh, authored would permit sanctions against Chinese banks, for which North Korea operates a great deal. Should we not consider that? as a possibility if we cannot get China to do diplomatically what we hope for them to do in North Korea, to change their calculus? I think we should keep all these options open. Uh, obviously, as ambassador, I won't be the decision maker on them. But if You'll we be a see... a big advisor to them. Well, that's right. And I'm, I won't hesitate to give my advice and what I'm able to learn on the, on the ground over there. Uh, and, and I do think all options should be open and that we ought to do everything we can to convince them to be much more aggressive in dealing with the threats from North Korea. And if that doesn't happen, then I think we need to look at what can we do to try to apply more pressure uh, to convince them that it's in their interest uh, and there will be consequences if they don't. I appreciate that. Finally, uh, as the co-chair of the Taiwan Caucus with Senator Inhofe, uh, I, I do hope that we, we will continue to promote uh, the Taiwan Relations Act as the law of the land, as the essence of our relationship with Taiwan. Uh, I understand the one-China policy, yep. but Taiwan is also very important to us, and I hope that uh, you will keep the perspective of the Taiwan Relations Act uh, as a focus in your engagement with China as it relates to Taiwan. Senator Menendez, I want to assure you that I will. I also have been to Taiwan. The state of Iowa does have a sister state with Taiwan, and I recognize the importance of both the One China policy but of also supporting and enforcing the Taiwan Relations Act. Thank you. I appreciate your directness. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Brasso. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, Governor. Congratulations on the nomination. Thanks for coming to visit with me uh, in my office. And then I, um, I saw you right before the, the break, and I was heading to China and uh, wanted to just uh, tell you that people are looking forward to 
you, uh, you as our ambassador. So thank you. Well, the Chinese people have been very nice to me. I've taken a lot of pictures of me for what that's worth. But uh, I would be interested in finding out uh, how your trip went. Uh, and, and I think you were intending to go to Tibet as well. Tibet as well, yes, sir. And, uh, but you know, very productive, very fruitful. Talked about some of the issues that have just been raised, but also issues of trade. And Senator Portman, as our former U.S. trade rep, brought up a number of issues. I brought up a number as well. One was on soda ash. Yes. Uh, because many U.S. industries experience a wide variety of concerns uh, that are surrounding China's trade policies and practices. As we've discussed in this committee, soda ash continues to face unfair trade practices from China, from other countries. The United States is the most competitive supplier of soda ash in the world due to the abundance of a raw material called trona in the United States. And uh, Wyoming, and specifically the Green River Basin, is the world's largest area for naturally occurring trona. So soda ash is a key manufacturing component of glass, detergents, soaps, chemicals. Uh, China is seeking to capture the global market share uh, from the United States soda ash producers, and they do it through unfair trade practices. Uh, China has given its own synthetic soda ash producers a significant rebate uh, on the China's value-added tax. So if confirmed, will you continue to work to highlight and eliminate market-distorting subsidies like the value-added tax rebate on soda ash exports that harm U.S. workers and U.S. producers? And, and we did so thank you. And yeah. the answer is yes. I look at this very much like the steel issue, uh, where they're being unfair and where they're doing, providing unfair subsidies. This is the kind of thing that we have to strenuously object to and do everything we can to try to correct. I appreciate it. because we And we did raise it with the premier yes. when we were there um, in, in Beijing. And then with regard to, to beef, and I know Senator Gardner yep. uh, asked a bit about that, we, the United States produces the highest quality beef in the world. Uh, while China lifted its ban on U.S. beef last September, some technical barriers have prevented the U.S. beef from actually gaining access to the Chinese market. Uh, in April, I signed a, a letter on this critical issue uh, to President uh, Trump, along with 38 other senators, right. including members of this committee, uh, bipartisan uh, members of this committee. Senator Kane had signed it, as well as Senator Risch and Gardner and Young and Paul and Portman. Uh, the letter urged the administration to discuss opening the Chinese market to U.S. beef, uh, with the President of China during his visit to the United States. And uh, it's, a vital, it's vital that we work toward uh, to ensure that U.S. beef is traded fairly and trade barriers are eliminated there as well. I agree wholeheartedly. I want to be able to serve beef, uh, American beef, specifically Iowa premium beef at the, uh, <laughs> at the embassy and at the uh, ambassador's residence. I don't think it's fair that right now we have to serve Australian beef or Argentinian beef. Uh, you know, and this issue goes back to mad cow disease 13 years ago. Uh, and as you said, they've announced they're going to do it, but it's still not been done. Uh, and that's one of the areas that uh, I feel very strongly about. In fact, the trade mission I went on in November to both China and Japan, we did have a... Uh, great press conference and uh, beef tasting in Tokyo. And, and our beef sales, I was on the early stages of opening that Japanese market many years ago to American beef. And uh, that now is really flourishing. And, and 
uh, we need the same access in China. A mad cow disease has not been in this country for, I think, 13 years. And besides that, the mad cow came from Canada. Uh, one final question, and it has to do with, uh, with human rights and economic issues, Governor. Uh, China is the United States' largest trading partner and it, in terms of great potential economic opportunities uh, for businesses in the United States. But China continues to engage in, in what I believe are serious human rights abuses, including political and religious repression. So as ambassador to China, can you just spend a little bit of time discussing how you're going to balance engaging China on the economic front while also demonstrating our nation's concerns about China's human rights violations. We're a nation that has always stood for human rights for all people in the world, and I think it's critically important the ambassador for the United States of America make that point and make that along with the other issues that, that we deal with in, in China. Um, I'm Catholic. I want to go to a Catholic church in China. I respect other people's religions as well. And I don't think religious uh, people should be persecuted. Uh, and and I, so I think it's very important that we protect uh, all human rights, including freedom of speech and freedom of religion. Thank you very much, Governor. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, I reserve some time on the front end. I didn't ask any questions. I just, uh, just thinking about all the myriad of questions you've been asked about China that all of us live on a daily basis. But between human rights violations, uh, non-freedom of press, what they do with U.S. journalists and others, uh, the monopoly laws they have there, which are intended to hurt U.S. companies, and they do, uh, the national security laws that do the same, the cyber theft that we've hit on several times, uh, violation of international norms in the South China Seas, uh, re redrawing thousands of years of history there, uh, they're non, non being in compliance with the UN Security Council resolutions on North Korea, knowingly allowing companies to violate that and doing so themselves. The dumping that takes place uh, with China manufactured goods, the subsidizing that takes place if that's not occurring, and, uh, and just what we've talked about with fentanyl and other kinds of things. Can you share with us some things that give you hope? Uh, about the premier's realness, if you will, and really wanting to reform the com com country so that it comes into more universal and international norms. I mean, what are the things that give you hope of their willingness to actually do so instead of, and by the way, what they do in Africa and other places where they basically cause countries there to be debt-laden, uh, doing things with all Chinese workers uh, that uh, solely benefit China. I mean, uh, give, me some, give me some optimism based on your relationship. Well, my relationship goes way back to 1983 well, I, 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 but when, today. In, in 84. Yeah. Here's the thing. China, as you know, was a very closed communist system. It started when uh, Henry Kissinger and then President Nixon went there and it began to open up and we were, my predecessor Robert Ray went to China kind of laid the groundwork, I signed the sister state, I went there in 84 I've seen big change in their system and, and we were hopeful that when they adopted these economic reforms it would lead to more political reforms I think our disappointment in recent years is 
and 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 I frankly my disappointment since uh, President Xi became the leader of China, and he's done some things to crack down on corruption and to try to clean up some of the bad practices of some of the members of of his party, but he has not uh, done what I'd hoped would happen, and that is become more open and more willing to accept uh, freedom of press and and stop the repression of minorities. And uh, those are the kind of issues that I hope to bring up with him. And, and, you know, both we go back a long ways, we're considered old friends, but I think, you know, he's got to recognize that some of the things that are being done in China today uh, are very much against uh, uh, what, what I think is the right uh, policies for a world leader. And I think he aspires to be a great leader for his country. But I want to, as an old friend, I tell him where I think they're falling short and the kind of things that need to be addressed, including these human rights, intellectual property rights, and other things. So I hope that I can be an effective uh, spokesman for America and for uh, challenging some of the policies that we think are really going in the wrong direction. Thank you. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair. That was, a, that was a good question. I've been wondering the same thing, and I appreciate, Governor Branstead, your service, and I'm, I'm uh, very happy to support you in this position. As we described, I've got good Democratic friends in Iowa who give you high marks, um, at least as high as they're going to give to somebody on the other <laughs> side, I'll be honest. Well, but, I, uh, they keep reelecting me, so they must have been. Well, and, and, and I'm struck by that, too. You know, I come from the only state where they just give you one term. <laughs> uh, they, they, I'm the only state where they call governor your excellency. So they, they, <laughs> they talk about you nice, but they want you to leave pretty quickly. So uh, 22 years is, is remarkable. And, and you've, had a, you've had a pretty amazing track record. I mean, uh, as I think about Iowa from having visited my friends, there's many things I think about, but maybe the thing I think about the most, ag and forestry is the number one part of the Virginia economy, yeah. and, and you guys lead with that. What you have done over the years of your tenure with others to improve the lot of family farms through the creation of alternative energy, right. options for farmers, so that together with farming for food, they could grow corn and use it to produce ethanol or have a wind tower that they could use to supplement income. I mean, I would just love to hear from 1983 to today, that has just been revolutionary. Well, thank you for bringing that up because I'm very proud of where we've come from. Uh, in 1983, we were almost totally dependent on imported energy. A lot of it, fuel that, you know, oil that came from the Middle East, um, uh, and most of our uh, electricity was generated by coal. Uh, today, Iowa leads the nation. And, 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 and in my very first year as governor, we signed uh, a, um, a renewable electric portfolio law that's been copied, I think, by 23 other states. And we now produce 35.8% uh, of our electricity by wind. And we have two big projects that have been announced. Mid-American Energy is investing another $3.6 billion in wind turbines. And Alliant, uh, those are our two big uh, utilities, another billion dollars. We'll be over 40%, the first state to do that, by the year 2020. And, of course, we lead the nation in ethanol. We produce more ethanol we consume in gasoline. 
We're moving from E10 to E15. Mm -hmm. We also have a number of E85 pumps in the state. We also lead the, the nation in, um, in, uh, uh, in, in, in biodiesel. Mm -hmm. And uh, no, non-corn-based biodiesel. So yeah, corn that's, that's soybean-based biodiesel. Mm -hmm. uh, it's almost all from soybeans. Some of it comes from animal fat. Mm -hmm. But it's either animal fat or soybeans. For, for if that. there's one place in the United States that demonstrates that fighting greenhouse gas emissions and promoting economic growth are not inconsistent goals, it's Iowa. Well, it's, and it's great a lot of jobs. Yeah. And it's also graded income, as you mentioned, for farmers. So this is another alternative to farmers, if you have a wind turbine on your farm, that generates income. It also generates property tax for that local government. I was looking at the website for the Iowa Corn Growers Association, and they talk about the four E's. They talk about economy, environment, energy security, without sacrificing engine performance. And yep. so in the, what's an area? New high per, 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 uh, the, the new high-performance engines, mm -hmm. they should use 30 or 40% ethanol. And we can clearly produce enough corn to do that and still keep the price of food relatively low. Then here's an area of hope that I see, kind of to follow up on Senator Corker's question. The United States and China are the largest emitters of greenhouse gas in the world. Yeah. And they were the first two nations to sign the Paris Climate Accord. Um, and as governor of Iowa, you go there with the story. They're dealing with major environmental challenges. You go there with the story, which is we can battle greenhouse gas and do it in a way that doesn't hobble the economy. If we're smart, if we're careful, if we're strategic about it, we can do it in a way that's good for the environment and good for the economy. Um, the one thing I would just ask, and this is not it kind of in line with some of your early testimony, this is not your decision to make, but it would be your advice to give. I think it would be a massive mistake for the United States to pull out of the Paris Climate Accord. The U.S. and China were first in, and they're setting leadership for the rest of the world. And if the U.S. were to pull out of it, the effect on the world, the effect on what China might do, I think could be significant. And you are the best person in the United States with a story to tell about how you can battle greenhouse gas emissions and also promote the environment at the same time. The Iowa Corn Growers Association website lists how ethanol is so much better with respect to both greenhouse gas emissions and use of water than production of gasoline. You... you, you you're an ambassador of the United States to China, but I also think you can be an ambassador for the clean energy economy of tomorrow to the nation in the world that most needs that advice right now. Well, Senator Kane, thank you for your advice on that. My oldest son, Eric, actually chaired the bipartisan uh, renewable energy coalition mm -hmm. that worked with all the candidates of both parties uh, before the Iowa caucuses mm -hmm. to educate them on renewable energy. Mm -hmm. And, in fact, uh, he brought uh, then-candidate Trump to one of the ethanol plants at Gowrie, Iowa. And, uh, and, and, and we got a tremendous response from both parties mm -hmm. and, and, I think, did a lot to educate the presidential candidates on the importance of renewable energy. So I think we still have more work to do, uh, especially on wind energy or wind when when uh, candidate Trump came to the Iowa State Fair, uh, I pointed out that we have a wind turbine right there at the Iowa State Fair. Uh, and um, uh, I also, uh, 
Secretary Perry, who's a former governor of Texas, they're also a big wind energy state, Absolutely. too. They had, they had the renewable energy portfolio early. That's right. When President they, Bush was governor. They followed uh, our lead, but uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> they're one of the, I think, 23 states that copied basically yeah. the law I signed in 83. So I agree with you. I, I, also, I would say there's a company called HZ. It's a Chinese company that has a couple of wind turbines near Nevada, Iowa. Mm -hmm. They are a subsidiary of ChemChina. I have called on them, and, and frankly, uh, we think there's, as you pointed out, opportunity for collaboration on this in a way that can benefit air quality in the whole world. Excellent. Well, I look forward to working with you. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Senator Rubio. Thank you. Thank you, Governor. Congratulations. I, uh, as you know, I spent some time in Iowa over the last year and a half, and we, too, went to the uh, fair, and my kids enjoyed it very much. They wanted to know why we didn't go this year, and I said... <laughs> But I well, we ask, miss you. <laughs> yeah. You're always welcome. <laughs> well, I asked them, what would you learn at the fair? And the one thing that one of my kids said is, we learned that you can fry anything. Uh, <laughs> Even so, butter. <laughs> so anyway, I appreciate it. And I appreciate your, your acknowledgement today that an economic opening towards a totalitarian state in and of itself will not guarantee a political opening. It will yeah. allow them to control the pace and the scope of that opening for economic purposes but it doesn't translate to political opening, and I think China is a perfect example of it. As I shared with you, I think this is the most, you know, when they write the book about the 21st century, there'll be a chapter in there about Russia, there'll be a chapter or two there about Islamic terrorism, but I think that book's going to be dominated by chapter after chapter documenting the relationship between the United States and China. It in very, how that relationship goes in very, very many ways is going to determine the direction of the 21st century. There's a sense, I think, among the Chinese people and many in their government that our goal is to contain them or to keep them down. And that certainly is not the case. On the contrary, I think we would love to have a partner in the global stage of their scope and magnitude to confront some of these challenges that we face. What we're not going to do, I believe, and it's important to communicate this, is we're not going to accept some sort of sphere of influence where they dominate the region at the expense of our allies and alliances in the region. And we're also going to continue to raise the human rights issue because it does play out, as we've seen in international forums. China is a consistent vetoer of anything at the Security Council that takes on the issue of human rights. And I think that reflects the way that government operates at home. And it's always important to have a distinction between the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese people. They are not the same thing. But one of the things that we've talked about is what's very important both in their culture and in their politics is the ability to save face in essence, to not be publicly embarrassed uh, on a topic. And therefore, as you've expressed in others, the best way to raise issues with the Chinese leadership is in a private uh, forum. And, and I would ask, as given your time and interaction with the current president of China, can you tell us of any instance where you raised a difficult issue or pressed him on, on something and, and you felt that, that, uh, that on an issue that perhaps was not aligned with the interests of the, of the Chinese Communist Party? Is there such an instance that you know where you raised an issue? That's a good question. Um, and I, I think your observation is, is absolutely right on about how we need to try to find ways to partner with them. Obviously, my role as governor is different than my role is going to be as ambassador. As governor, uh, I wasn't as aggressive at bringing up the human rights issues and things like that because I it felt that was economic a issue. federal, yeah, was economic issues. But uh, certainly uh, we've made great progress uh, over the years in opening uh, China for 
uh, things like soybeans. I mean, we're at the point where last year, I, I, I even, when my staff told me it was nearly, it was 48% of our soybeans went to China, it had been one-third, and then it had been that had gone to China, and now it's up to 48% last year. But there's also things that have gone the other way. DDGs, which is a, that is a byproduct from ethanol, uh, they've now put a, a, a tariff on, on that that's really dramatically reduced our exports of that. So I've, I've seen areas where we've made progress. I've also seen areas where we've lost ground. Um, I, I think we I just have to be vigilant in going after those things where we think they're being unfair. Uh, I, I think there has been some good things that Xi Jinping has done to crack down on corruption within his own party and his own government. Uh, some people say, well, part of that is just about getting rid of his enemies. But uh, I, I think some of it uh, has really been about addressing the severe problem they do have with corruption. Well, and Governor, I guess my, my point, because my time is about to expire, is there is no shortage of human yeah. rights abuses. There's a, you know, a, you mentioned your Catholic faith, as I have as well. Bishop uh, Sue, an 85-year-old Catholic bishop who's disappeared and, and we presume imprisoned by the, uh, the, the government there. What, what I hope to, to acquire from you today is a commitment that on these cases, whether it's publicly or privately, that these are issues that you will raise uh, with, your, with, with the government of China, that when, whether it's an American or some other case, because this is really important for the human rights community to feel like their ambassador to China is someone who is going to raise these issues, even if it makes our host, in this case the Chinese Communist Party, uncomfortable. And, 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 in, and in light of that, I mean, the, the, to meet with them in China when, they, when they're willing to meet with you, uh, the willingness to meet with some of their exiles that are here in the United States to hear their concerns. This is a very important commitment. It's a very important part of this job, and I think it's really important for those interested in human rights globally and in China to know that they're going to have an ambassador willing to raise these issues, both in those public, private forums, and meet with them privately and uh, publicly as opposed to allowing them to be marginalized. Well, I will do that. Uh, and, and just to assure you, my first trip to the old Soviet Union was in 1986. It was just shortly after Chernobyl. And I actually smuggled um, Natan Sharansky's book in to the American embassy to give to his mother. My wife and I met with a group of refuseniks, you know, the... The um, I'm sure that the, the the woman that they had as our escort, the the, the Russian, uh, the Soviet uh, uh, person was a KGB agent. We slipped uh, out of her presence, and we met with a group of refuseniks to find out what was really happening in what was called Leningrad at the time, now Saint Petersburg. So uh, I'm not bashful about. Uh, uh, meeting with dissidents or people that feel they're being discriminated or treated unfairly. You know, I have a history of being willing to do that in my previous role. As ambassador, I think it's even import more important uh, because of our country's commitment to human rights. Uh, and and I would look forward to working with you and ideas that you and others have about uh, people that are not being treated fairly and uh, being able to at least bring those issues up in a private setting because, as you said, it's saving face is important in their uh, culture. 
but it's also, I think, important that uh, we confront them with those areas where we feel that they are not abiding by basic human dignity. Senator Carden. Well, well, Governor, first I want to um, applaud your participation here today. You've done, done very well in uh, giving us the confidence of your knowledge of the areas and the way that you go about trying to reach strategic uh, decisions as to how to advance U.S. interests. So I, I thank you for that. I, I want to um, put a, a dose of reality on North Korea for one moment because I am concerned with some of the exchanges, not necessarily your response, but the realities of the circumstances in North Korea as it relates to American values and as it relates to North Korea's continued desire to violate international commitments on nuclear proliferation and missile tech, uh, proliferations. The challenge is that there really is not a military option for first strike by the United States. Unlike the circumstances we found, found in Iran with their nuclear proliferations, a military option would have been terrible, but it was doable. In North Korea, a military option would involve the risks of millions of lives. That's the reality. Right. So we really are faced with changing the calculation in North Korea so that they take action to eliminate this threat, which requires China. So that then brings us to the point that China and the United States have some common interests. China doesn't want to see this blow up, as you point out. They don't want all those uh, immigrants or migrants coming in from North Korea. That's absolutely correct. But they also don't want to see a democratic country on their border. North Korea looks at nuclear weapons as their ability for maintaining their regime, because we cannot find, it would be difficult for us to take them out. So how do you deal with China that's not interested in bringing down the North Korean regime, wants to maintain a communist country on their border, how do we work with them in the fear that they have that America's interest is to try to bring down the North Korean regime? How, how do you balance all that and, and get North Korea to understand that they can maintain their regime security without nuclear weapons? Uh, it's a very perceptive question that you've asked, Senator Cardin, and, and, and that is right. Uh, there's no way that China is going to want to see a regime change that has a democratic uh, united Korea under South Korean rule on their border. By the same token, uh, I, I think uh, we also recognize that uh, Seoul is very close. I, I mean, I've been to Seoul several times, South Korea. I've been to the DMZ. Uh, and so I, in, in, you know, I think 20 million people in Seoul whose lives are in jeopardy if, if we were to try to um, at attack North Korea. Uh, that's certainly not something we want to put those people's lives in, 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 in jeopardy. So that's why working with the Chinese in convincing the Chinese that uh, they are the ones that have the potential to really influence the regime in North Korea more than anyone else, and that uh, the change that needs to take place there 
doesn't need to be a threat to the system, but needs to stop this nuclear proliferation and the and the the building of a guidance system for for missiles to attack the United States and Japan and other countries in the world. Uh, it is probably the most pressing issue that we have right now. Um, and I want to do whatever I can to try to be uh, a go-between between our two countries that can help uh, convince uh, the leadership in China that uh, it's in their interest and our interest to work together to stop this dangerous uh, direction that is coming out of uh, uh, North Korea. And um, uh, their leadership is critically important to doing that. And it needs to be done in a way that they don't feel it threatens them, but also that it will provide security to the other nations in that part of the world. And we want to give you the strongest possible hand in making that case. So please feel comfortable to give us advice as to how the Congress can weigh in to make your case the strongest possible for China to help us in changing the calculations in North Korea. I want to do anything and everything that I can. I'm open to listening to suggestions or ideas that any member of this committee or any member of the Senate has. Uh, I want to work closely with the administration and everybody else, but uh, I see this as probably the biggest challenge that I've ever had in my entire life, and I want to do anything and everything that I can to try to find a acceptable solution for the benefit of the entire human race. Thank you. Just to follow on before we close out, I, I think most people believe that no amount of economic pressure, no amount of economic pressure will keep North Korea from developing a deliverable nuclear weapon to the yeah. United States. Um, he views that as his ticket to uh, die as an old man in his bed down the road, his ticket to to not being taken out. So um, it's a strategy that most people believe has problems because of a strong desire to have the weapon. But at the same time, China's lack of willingness to play the role that has to be played um, is, has got to change. I mean, at least we have to attempt as a world community to put uh, severe economic pressures on this country um, to stop it. And I, I do hope that China is willing to step up to that. I, I think they do a lot of head fakes and act as if they're going to do things and then never follow through. Uh, but I do think something severe is going to happen in the region if they don't. And uh, I think it's totally dependent upon them. It is. We'd love to work with you. I think, you know, the administration is trying to do what they can to bring the world community in to help bear pressure, to to raise the, the level of concern and awareness. But I do hope that you'll work with us um, in whatever way you deem appropriate uh, to help bring pressure to bear. It's, uh, I, I do hope that the, the pendulum has swung and that China now views North Korea as a liability and not an asset. I hope that you're going to do everything you can to ensure that that is the case. But I do believe that from the standpoint of global encounters that can get out of control and millions of people uh, be ravaged in the process, this is the one that 
is most evident to us today. So um, I hope none of that happens. I hope as a world community we'll come together. But I do think that in many ways is your most important responsibility as you take on this post. You have, uh, you've had an outstanding hearing. Um, I think your on-the-ground experiences with China um, will serve our nation well. I think your understandings um, of what drives the thinking within China will serve our nation well. Uh, I thank you for your willingness to give up a very comfortable place. Apparently, <laughs> issues of re-election are not a problem. <laughs> uh, to, uh, to go to a post that's, that's much more temporary and yet, in many ways, far more meaningful from the standpoint of our security and the world's security. So thank you. Uh, we'll leave the record open until the close of business Thursday. I, I'm sure you'll want to answer those questions promptly and, and will. Will do. Um, thank your family for their willingness for you to be so far away for so many years. Um, and uh, we look forward to your confirmation and working with you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, all the members of your committee. It's been an honor and a privilege to uh, get uh, the benefit of your counsel and advice, and I look forward to continuing to work with you uh, if I get the confirmation and the opportunity to serve our country as the ambassador to China. Thank you very much. Thank you. Meetings adjourned.